You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Jessamy, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Oh, my pleasure. The third time you're back. I and, know. Uh, I, I always love speaking to you because um, I think this is this book that we're going to talk about by here, How to Overcome Trauma and Find Yourself Again. Um, I always think that you write books as well as your last book on imposter syndrome. You always write books that are uh, relevant, pressing, relatable. Um, and this is obviously from your experience as a clinician um in clinical psychology but i always love the way that you write so so well done on writing another amazing book thank you thanks i'm really looking forward to talking to you about it today one of the things i found you know quite interesting perhaps about uh about trauma was at the start of the book um when i was going through i think that you know it's it's a, a word that i think can mean a lot of different things to many different people and um you know you seem to kind of perhaps widen the definition of trauma, you know, as, you know, the DSM, they kind of commonly give give one. Uh, but perhaps could you talk us through, I guess, you know, how you perceive trauma uh, yeah. from your point of view? Yeah. So I guess originally it's been defined by the DSM as a experience where there's actual threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence um, experienced by you or someone close to you. But when I wrote the book, and thankfully, kind of more broadly, I think, you know, across the board, people see trauma as far broader than that. And so when I wrote the book, I wanted to capture what I see in my clinic and, you know, what I know I've experienced and what I've seen so many other people go through. And so I defined it as any deeply distressing or disturbing experience that would cause you emotional and physical pain and at a deeper level challenge your beliefs about how you understand yourself and how you understand life. And it's that last bit that's really key when it comes to trauma, because it rocks your ideas about your life. And I think of it as opening up a gap between what you thought your life was, and then with the experience and all that happens, what you now know it to be. And previously, you have an expectation of how things are going to go and trauma falls outside of that, because we have a framework of beliefs for our lives. And day to day, we expect certain things to happen. And more often than not, it does. And our brain keeps trauma tucked away so that we don't, you know, worry about crossing the road or walking in the dark at night. It kind of keeps us safe. But the problem is when we experience trauma, it, it blows up everything we know and it leaves us distressed and questioning ourselves and, you know, what we thought our life was and what we expect our future to be. And the thing is something like, you know, redundancy, burnout, miscarriage, bereavement, none of those would be classified as trauma by the DSM. And yet we know how much those affect us and how much it rocks our lives. You know, if you worked all your life towards a job and then you're made redundant, it completely changes your identity. It changes the future you imagined. It changes your ideas about yourself. And that gap it creates is where we experience the distress. Um, and that's how I thought about trauma for the book. Trauma kind of, guess 
hidden away in certain parts of, of the brain. So I wonder just in your own life, in your own clinics, as I mentioned, you, you are, of course, a clinician. Um, what, what are some of perhaps the common, I guess, trauma responses that you see in your clinic or perhaps the ways that trauma manifests itself? Yeah, well, it is really at the heart of every problem I see. And mm-hmm. things like anxiety or depression or insomnia, that's like the symptom of what you experience as a result of going through those things. But what I see in my work is life not working out as you expected, you know, whether that's due to some of the things I've just mentioned, like divorce or bereavement or cancer or, you know, some other kind of significant life event that happens to you or or whether it's something that would be defined by DSM. And in the book, I write about seven stories of people who've gone through trauma and it covers, you know, cancer, bereavement. Um, one of them was shot in Afghanistan. So he's the only one in the book who would reach that criteria. And yet the others, I've got somebody in it who had insomnia and a breakdown. You know, all of these other stories are things we can all identify with. And we know how much they kind of shatter our view of life and what we know. And that's what I commonly see in my clinic. And whilst, you know, initially that, response of anxiety or physically responding to trauma um, depression loss of hope can be at the forefront what I have also been you know fortunate to see and why I wanted to write the book is this other story of how you can go through these incredibly difficult times but come out stronger and that it can be a chance to look at your life and what you want and think about what you want from your future Um, and so whilst distress of course occurs and nobody would kind of seek out trauma actually we know that distress and growth coexist um, and that distress isn't the only story when it comes to trauma. I think that someone could be listening to this and they could be going through redundancy or a breakup or any kind of traumatic experience that you talked about but they and perhaps not perceive that this could lead to perhaps biological changes in, for instance, maybe the brain or the nervous system. Has the research kind of proven a clear link between, you know, a a real traumatic experience and it actually having some sort of real biological negative effect on us? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about the mind and body, we know intuitively that they're linked. You know, if you think about food, your mouth waters, if you feel very anxious, you experience it really physically. And so trauma is no different. When you experience trauma, it's not just thinking about what happened, you actually have this physical response. And what lots of people don't realize, and actually it's really interesting researching it for the book, is how our body reacts to threat. So that's at a bodily level, not a conscious level. You know, our body is actually always on the lookout for threats and cues to kind of work out what's going on in the environment. So when we experience trauma, that's a huge threat and it pushes us into our sympathetic nervous system and that's into fight, flight and freeze. And actually it's really difficult to get back from that. So you're stuck on fight or flight with all the kind of um, activation of that, like heart rate, you know, how you feel physically, your stomach, But with all those physical changes, it also has an impact on how you're thinking. So it colors your thoughts. You can be stuck replaying the event. Then it changes your behaviors. You know, you're less likely to go and do things that might remind you of that or it might restrict your life in certain ways. Um, And so they're all interlinked. And the hardest thing is that because 
trauma pushes us so far over capacity it's almost like our body and mind are like a faulty fire alarm it just gets set off really easily our capacity is so full already that it's hardly anything that pushes us over the top so once you experience trauma if it's not dealt with it's really difficult to reset i was watching um american sniper and uh with uh Bradley Cooper and there's a very very powerful scene in the movie um in which uh Bradley Cooper he comes back from one of his tours and uh, he's kind of sat on the sofa and he's just staring vacantly at this tv screen and his wife and his kids are like calling him and like his wife just comes up and she just looks at him staring at this television screen and uh, and then she looks at the television screen and she just sees that like there's there's nothing on there and he's just staring at it vacantly and there's nothing that can kind of um uh you know kind of get his attention and one of the things that i found that you talk about in your book um was that you say in the book that we now know that trauma comprises the brain area that communicates the physical embodied feeling of being alive so perhaps in terms of I guess how they present uh, Bradley Cooper's symptoms uh, of PTSD in that film. It, what is going on there? Is that something that could actually happen in, in perhaps in real life? I, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are. Yeah. So um, it sounds to me like he's experiencing PTSD, and when you think about trauma, you go through different phases, and the first phase is called outcry, and that's when you experience the shock of it happening and often overwhelming distress initially but actually phase two you go into um, a more detached mode where you're kind of more numb to life and it's almost like you're in denial in that phase and in a way it's your body and mind's way of trying to slowly come to terms with what's happened and it's almost like it's too much to deal with you have to push it to one side but the third phase is intrusive re-experiencing and what most people do is they go between the two and I wonder I haven't actually watched the film but it's such a striking um image that it conjures up and I wonder if actually he's either back in the kind of war zone kind of re-experiencing all of those things because you get flashbacks it's almost like you're going through it again and whether he's in that phase and going between that and then being just totally numb and detached and the trouble with that numbness as well it does protect you a bit it also numbs everything out the good stuff you know as well as the bad stuff so I wonder if that's what's going on in the scene you describe yeah and I actually think that 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 movie I think that this kind of talks about many of the stages that you discuss in this book because you see this very charming guy kind of go through this arc and then you know after a lot of toil and and you know pain and suffering and then he at the right at the end of the film he kind of comes out of it so it is a beautiful story that i think kind of summarizes not just the the negative effects that it can have but also towards the end it also shows the positive things that that can come from it yeah um, in the sense that you know towards the end he becomes a, a more loving husband and and you know and you see the delight in his wife's face and, and his kids and i won't spoil it for, for how it ends but yeah. but it, it it is it is i think a beautiful development so that would be a yeah. recommendation uh, yeah something. and i think it's a really good example because there's no getting away from how awful trauma can be and that response is not a strange response like it's understandable that your head's going to be stuck in it trying to work it out and make sense of it and go over it and that your body's going to still 
feel that kind of actively alert to threat. And if it gets to a point where it is PTSD, obviously that's, you know, I'm not focusing on that in the book. That's something that you get seen by a GP and, you know, you have to have support with and there's really good outcomes for treatment. But even just, you know, when it's less than that, you're still going to go through this distress because it's just so hard. But like you describe, actually, it can take you through and to this better place at the end as you reassess life and what's worthwhile and the things that are important to you. I was just talking to uh, Offi about um, a conversation I had with uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote uh, The Body Keeps the Score. I, I believe you even mentioned him in this book. Um, and I remember one of the things that um, I took away from that conversation was that trauma, particularly if experienced young, um, you know, in those kind of first uh you know those primary uh those 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 you know within the first few years of life particularly with the brain i think is very plastic that yeah. that seems to be correlated with some unpleasant outcomes um do you have you perhaps thought about you know what is going on there what why is infancy adolescence such a, a key area when it comes back to this framework of beliefs that I keep talking about that's what you build when you're young mm. so if I'm working with somebody I'll ask them about what's going on for them currently but actually I'll also take a history because when you're growing up you learn about yourself you learn about relationships you learn about what to expect from the world through the experiences you have and in a way you know the people closest to you they inform that view because you don't know that other families might be different and you can't Google it. You know, you don't have access to understanding life on different terms. So if you've got a fairly kind of predictable upbringing, you know, there's no such thing as perfect, but if you've got consistent caregivers and they think well of you and things happen as you expect and, you know, the world's generally a safe place that's stable, then that's, you know, you see yourself in good terms, you expect good things from life, and you also find it, you know, fairly okay to trust in relationships. Whereas if you experience trauma at a young age, or you've got kind of an experience, either an individual experience or more often with childhood trauma, sadly, it's an ongoing experience of neglect or abuse or, you know, difficulty, then what you expect from life is not a good thing. And, you know, being able to trust in relationships, it's just not there in the same way. And again, your view of yourself and how you see yourself, if your caregivers aren't on your side or you're in a kind of situation where you're bullied or kind of not treated well, then you learn those lessons about yourself as somebody who's not worthwhile and who um, you see as yourself as not being good enough in some way. And I guess the big thing as well about it is that you don't just learn about yourself and the world, you also learn about your feelings. So a really simple way to think about it is if you're, you know, if you're holding a baby, and the baby's crying, then generally you reflect back that distress. So you're kind of like, oh, it's okay. You might rock them or kind of hold them closer. Whereas if they're happy, then you're kind of happy with them, bouncing them around, you know, telling them how great they are. So your feeling reflects their feeling and that's how they come to understand feelings. And again, where things aren't predictable or safe, then actually you might feel distressed and get shouted at or punished, or you might um, feel unsafe, but not be able to show that. And so there's a mismatch between what you're experiencing and what's reflected back at you. And as a result, you slowly start to stop trusting your feelings. So it's in, in those yeah. two ways, it's your framework and what you expect of life, but it also affects how you understand your feelings and other people. 
And I suppose another one could be that if you are not convinced of the the safety of the caregivers and you turn internally, yeah. uh, you know, you turn to yourself as a child to regulate your own emotions, um, perhaps that could correlate with, with various attachment styles, like becoming yeah. uh, anxious or, uh, you know, self-isolating later yeah. in life. Could that potentially be something? Yeah. And I think the sad thing is it can even happen in families where there is love and support. So, for example, one of the stories in the book, Sophie, mm. sadly, her dad had cancer when she was really young. And even though she was so loved and, you know, life was, you know, secure, it wasn't predictable. And her idea about these terrible things that could happen, you know, she learned from a really young age. So it can be where it's in an obvious environment that's kind of going to have a detrimental impact but it can also be from these really difficult things happening at a young age that you start to think okay I can't trust a knife or the people who I love aren't necessarily safe and I would love to kind of uh get into what we can do about that but but what one extreme example that I would love to ex- uh, ask you about is um particularly I think through the lens of children or young adolescents was uh in the film the Batman. I'm very interested in kind of uh, not just looking at things, I guess, through empirical examples, but also um, how these things manifest themselves in fictitious circles. So, for instance, in the case of uh, the Joker, um, in the in that kind of realm, they paint this guy as, um, you know, he's known to have experienced, for instance, substantial childhood neglect, bullied, tied to a radiator as a young kid, malnourished, lonely, and interestingly, here's one of the things is that he talks about that he can't remember his childhood. Um, so I wonder, you know, perhaps that's from stress, but I wonder, you know, I guess through the lens that kind of you view trauma, I guess, how would you kind of, I guess, assess what happens to this fictitious case, I should add? <laughs> well, I guess the first thing to say is that sadly, you know, millions of people experience childhood trauma and definitely becoming an evil superhero is not the only outcome. (laughs) Like Going down that route would be incredibly rare. But in terms of what we're talking about, then your experiences growing up, they do shape you and your expectations for life and, you know, how you view other people and how you think things will go are going to be massively shaped by an experience like that. And in terms of not remembering it, again, that's understandable because you're pushed into that fight flight freeze mode and when you're in that activated state you're just coping like you're just doing what you can to get through you can't lay down memories you haven't got the capacity left over um and so experiencing such kind of neglect and abuse and being you know this in this like chaotic household then your understanding of people and the world and life is is going to be massively different to if you've you know, grown up in a small village, gone to the same school, had the same friends, had your parents together, you know, your view of life is just hugely different. And sadly, if you learn those kind of behaviours, sometimes they repeat. And that's why patterns can repeat through families, because that's what you've learned. That's what you know. And violence or um, treating people badly is a way to keep safe. And so you you also are on the receiving end of that. But sadly, you learn that role, too. Yeah, and I think that perhaps one of the the interesting parts about about the Joker story, and I've 
certainly you just want to say that if you know someone has experienced a bad childhood you know as you said please don't go and become a, a super villain but one of the things that i am interested in and, and i have heard people anecdotally say this with something traumatic has happened to them and then they really struggle to remember it yeah. um so it is that as you said but they because you know your your brain is so preoccupied with i guess trying to deal with it that it shuts out the memories yeah it is massively over capacity so it doesn't have the same ability to kind of download and store memories you know a bit like if you obviously it's completely different but if you drink a lot your body gets to a point where it can't deal with the alcohol yeah. and remember the evening so it's yeah. downloading it so when our body can't do everything it just drops some of those things but what's interesting about trauma is that we don't lay down memories in the same way and that's part of why we re-experience it get flashbacks have nightmares and so when you think about our brain we've got the left and right side and in really simple terms the left side is more logical and rational and kind of verbal and the right side is more emotion and pictures and normally they work together and that's how you process your experiences and then you kind of lay down the memory and that's a memory you put away and you can think back to but it doesn't intrude on you the rest of the time with trauma they're not communicating and so that's why you get all these physical symptoms afterwards and why you can have it kind of coming back to you in all these different ways. And in the book, I write about how important it is to tell your story, because when you give words to those frightening and painful experiences, what we know is it allows the left and brain, right brain to link up and it takes away the pain and fear from those experiences and allows us to lay them down in a different way. Um, but that's why it's so important not to, you know, like you said, sadly, trauma is so often kept a secret or seen mm. as something you feel ashamed of or guilty about. It's, you know, when actually what I know from my work, writing the book, you know, from my own life, nobody's exempt from trauma. But right. by keeping it a secret, you don't get that chance to talk about it and speak about what happened and lay down the memory and kind of let go of all of that, those physical and emotional feelings that come with it. One of the most enjoyable conversations I've had on the podcast this year was with a psychiatrist, Ian McGilchrist, and uh, mm. he said to me that one of the rules that he uses in his own life is to not make beautiful things explicit, but things that are typically kept as taboo, like death or disease. He said it's a shame that as a society we don't talk about these things because when you make something explicit and you have things out in the open he said that you rob it of its power yeah. um, do you resonate with that at all I love that I think it's such a good way to put it and I think not only that I think so often and again it's our brain kind of playing tricks on us and trying to keep us safe we hear about something awful that happens and we say you know we kind of either think oh, that wouldn't happen to me. Or we find yeah. kind of blame the other person in some way. And it's our brain's way of keeping it away from us and saying, oh, this you're safe. This isn't going to happen to you. But actually keeping it so at arm's length means when it happens to you, it's such a shock. And because you've believed it was their fault in some way, then that makes you to blame when it happens to you. And so I think that the things that surround trauma make it far harder to overcome. And that in a way, like modern life says, well, you can just, live your best life you know if you do everything right life can be amazing but the reality is that that isn't the case you know the things that happen are random sadly and we're not in control of them 
And when they happen to us, rather than saying, oh, you know, if I'd done the right thing, I could have avoided this. It's it's just not right. It's saying life is really difficult and tough. You know, even the religious scriptures or kind of oldest texts talk about life as struggle. And when we know that, it gives us more space to enjoy all the good things, you know, to not keep them in the dark, just like um, the psychiatrist described, but also to um, enjoy the best bits of life and know that they're not always around. One of the things that I've come to appreciate far more over the years is that life is more like poker than chess. Um, and I got to say, I'm not particularly great at either, but but in the game of chess, you know, whoever makes strategically the best moves will win. Yeah. Uh, whereas in poker, you could have the best hand and still lose. There's always the element of randomness. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that example, you know, because I think it highlights that even if you do the most uh, the most sensible things, you look after yourself, you do all these, although, of course, you know, the chances of it being beneficial are high. There is always the, the chance of randomness. Yeah. Um, one of the things I would love to ask you is because um, I know that you wrote your thesis, and I please forgive me if I'm correct, but it was related to meaning and PTSD, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess that this, this book, uh, you know, you were kind of uniquely qualified to talk about some of these effects. But one of the things I'd love to pick up on is um, throughout the book, you talk a lot about meaning and frameworks. And I guess, how does that relate to trauma? I guess the big thing is that actually when it comes to life, it's not what happens to us. It's how we experience it that's key mm. to then the outcome. So an example in the book is two siblings, Finn and Jess, who sadly lost their mum to cancer and it happened really quickly. And I wrote, wrote about both their stories as you know a way to talk about what it's like to go through bereavement, but also how differently we can respond to the same event and how differently we might think about it or cope with it or speak about it and the different things that we do. And when it comes to trauma, the meaning that we take from it is key. So we know that if you kind of feel in some way guilty or to blame or that you know you were at fault in some way the outcomes are far worse whereas when we've when I kind of looked at the research for this they defined it really nicely and they said actually it's about the story you come to tell and that there can be two types of story either a story of redemption where you know you went through a really difficult time but essentially it's a story of hope things were difficult and painful but ultimately you grew stronger or something good came out of it or you learned something more about yourself or it was a turning point and we know with stories of redemption that the outcomes psychologically are far better for well-being you know for um how you feel about yourself and for kind of general outlook afterwards the alternative is a contamination story where actually people interpret their lives as going from good to bad and they tend to be tinged with things like regret or to feel like you were the victim of the story. Um, and what's really interesting is that actually that interpretation informs our feelings about the event, but it also informs our ideas of our, like the person we are, you know, and what we're capable of and what we expect from life. So it is, it kind of goes at all these different levels and we're actually in control of that narrative. You know, I'm not suggesting that we say, it was all really good and actually it didn't matter. It's being really realistic about what happened and acknowledging how difficult it was, but it's also seeing yourself 
and what you could have potentially learned about yourself, whether it's that you never thought you'd go through something like that and you managed to, you know, whether it's that actually it reminded you that you have one life. You, you know, so many of us are kind of stuck in the autopilot of the day to day and it's like, oh, just get through this week, this month, this year. And trauma shapes us and is like, mm. wake up, this is your one life. And so when you start to see it in those terms, of course, it shapes how you feel, it shapes how you see things, it shapes how, what you see yourself as capable of. Um, and that, I guess that's what I meant when it came to meaning um, for the book. And that's what I found in the research that I did both with the Foreign Office for meaning and PTSD, but also all the research with the book as well. This was an example that I, I heard on the show before, and it was that if you had two people going through a breakup and a guy breaks up with a girl and the girl says to herself, you know, oh, I've I've lost the one. I've lost the per- my soulmate. And that's person A. And then person B goes through the, the exact same situation but says, oh, you know, I've just been broken up with. I thought I'd lost my soulmate, but how can I lose my soulmate if they'd just broken up with me? And mm-hmm. I think that why I like that example is because the perception that we have of an event, uh, you know, of one person's thinking that I've lost the person I was supposed to be with forever versus the other person saying, how can this be my forever person if they're no longer here, if they've chosen not to be with me? And I, I, I really like that example because I think that it taps into what you're saying, if I'm understanding rightly, is that the perception that we have of an, of an event can be perhaps really key in the outcomes that follow. Is that sort of on the right lines? Definitely. And that, you know, that that's a good example, because even in the simplest of terms, it could be that I walk to get my train and I miss it, you know, and then if I miss it, and I'm like, phew, I didn't really feel like going anyway. Now I can just phone in and be like, sorry, I couldn't make it compared to if you're like, my boss is going to be really cross with me. I'm late, you know, like it's how you interpret it that then informs what you're thinking, the emotions you're experiencing, then that affects how you're feeling physically. And yet it's the same event. It's just how differently each person can interpret it. Or another one that I particularly enjoy is, is, you know, should someone ever fail an exam instead of saying, you know, I'm stupid or I'm a failure, say I'm demotivated. (laughs) (laughs) I I really like that one. I like it. Um, So one of the other things that I, I think that one of the most common traumatic experiences that people go through, and, and in the book you talk about, so many losses that people experience, you know, loss of the life that you knew, loss of identity, loss of who you thought you were, loss of the imagined life that you thought that you could have. And I I think that going through a breakup, it seems to tap into many of them. And, And the interesting thing about breakups is I can say this in my own life, that I've had friends that I would describe as as highly intelligent that are very rational that will go through a breakup and they they will do just the craziest things i mean they'll travel to las vegas they'll get tattoos they'll uh drink excess for months i've seen some of the strangest things that come out of a breakup um so i wonder you know through that lens uh do you perhaps have any idea why breakups they hurt so much I guess that in a way, if you go back to kind of survival of the fittest, then we're programmed to meet someone, you know, and partner up. And it's so much more than that, because when you meet somebody and you're in a relationship that, you know, kind of goes deep, then you show so much of yourself. You're vulnerable. 
that person sees more of you than anybody else and you kind of build them into your life they're part of your everyday they're part of how you imagine your future to be and so when that goes wrong it hurts at so many levels you know it takes away what you expected from your future it changes your day-to-day but also it's saying that that person is kind of rejecting you and whilst it's often not personal it's about it not just being quite right or you know things not working out as expected it feels deeply personal and I guess the other thing about love is it's just not a rational emotion you know it's not totally rational we don't act in rational ways you know when I met my husband we met at a musical festival in Serbia I wasn't going to Serbia to look out for a husband I met him <laughs> and in love with him and these things happen kind of out of the blue and in unexpected ways and our behavior around it when it doesn't work um can be just the same not rational but in the book uh you highlight that in a review of 77 studies that a lack of social support was one of the strongest PTSD predictors. So can we perhaps infer from that that a social network is key if we are perhaps going through something traumatic, but also in our everyday lives, even if perhaps we're not, but social network is perhaps key. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess it goes back to that idea of evolution again, that we're highly social beings, but to survive we had to get on well in a group and having kind of support around us was not just protective, but it also helped us regulate our emotions. And I know you've done lots of research on it, but if you're isolated and lonely, it can be worse for you than smoking. You know, relationships are key to our health and happiness. But I think it's also more than that. It's just knowing someone cares that makes a huge difference. When you think about the kind of shame and blame that comes with trauma, opening up to somebody and then being there for you and not judging you it kind of reminds you that actually it's okay you know even though it's incredibly hard it, it's not your fault or you can get through it and the other thing is when you open up and share your story with other people most of the time they say god I totally get it this has been so difficult for me or I went through this period where it was so hard and so you get to hear that you're not alone and that actually you know no one's going through life with it all together and all sorted so I think it's on multiple levels that it makes a difference, but it's really key to trauma. The book is titled How to Overcome Trauma and Find Yourself Again. Um, so perhaps in terms of, I guess, the finding yourself again or, or the post-traumatic growth, could you perhaps talk about you know this idea that we, we've kind of, I guess, built up to? Yeah, I think the thing was that historically, we the research focused a lot on negative outcomes of trauma. And so for a long time from like the world wars, it was about what goes wrong when you experience trauma. And it wasn't until more recently that research has started to look at growth experiences in the aftermath of trauma and the things that can change positively as a result of going through difficult times. And what the research shows overwhelmingly is that growth after trauma is far more common than ending up with something like PTSD or a psychiatric disorder. And, you know, I've kind of touched on it already, but it's, of course, adversity isn't something we'd seek out. But even when it came to the stories for the book, there were some people who said, you know, wish I hadn't gone through it. There were some that said, actually, there were good and bad sides to it. And there were some people who said, I'm so glad it happened. It was a point where I stopped and I looked at my life again and I thought about what I wanted from it. And I realized that actually things hadn't been good for a long time. And that's what the research shows that it can be this turning point. And I kind of think of it as, you know, imagine you're in your life, it's like you're halfway up the mountain. What you can see from there might look good, 
But actually with a trauma, it takes you further up the mountain and it gives you this broader perspective. And it is that reminder that, you know, I guess that this is this is what we've got to do to work with and this is the time to make the most of it. And so what all the research shows and what I really wanted to highlight in the book is that although it might be the end of life as you know it, it's not the end of life and that humans have this amazing ability to adapt. I share it over and over again on this podcast. People go through bad parenting as a child and they say to themselves, I'm going to go and become the best parent to my kid. Or they get fired from a job and, you know, with grip and, uh, you know, a new focus, they end up going and finding something better. They go through a breakup and then they end up, you know, reflecting on various things and they go and become a much better partner for it. And I also think as well, you know, but if you always had everything just, given to you and there was never any challenge or strife you know i i I just think you'd be far more interesting if if some things occasionally went wrong now i'm not trying to of course trivialize some of the very terrible experiences that do happen to people but i think as as you point out and the research points out there can be very positive effects that that does come from it or that can come from it is is that what i'm understanding yeah and that actually I think that fundamentally it's the difficult times that we learn the most from because it pushes us into a situation we never imagined being in and it gives us a chance to see, you know, what we're capable of. And it kind of wakes us up to life a bit. And like you say, it's not trivializing in any way how difficult parts of that can be. But I think it's just emphasizing that, I don't know, when you try and be in tight control of life, it's just not realistic. Like you said, it's a game of poker. It's about the hands you're dealt. And then how you deal with that and what you take from life is more up to you. And it can be a mirror to how ordinary life is actually something to be cherished and that the things you've already got in your life, having kind of gratitude for that. But also more kind of, you know, in some people's experiences, a turning point of saying, actually, what am I doing? I don't want to be living this life anymore. I want to go and do this or that you've kind of followed the route your parents expected and you suddenly think, well, hold on, I don't want to do that anymore. So it can open up our lives either internally, knowing ourselves differently or externally in terms of how we live. You say in the book, hope and support are necessary uh, components for overcoming trauma. And and hope is an interesting word to me because I, I always go back to a conversation I had with... Tal Ben-Shahar, he taught Harvard's most popular ever course on happiness. And I remember that he said to me that depression was sadness without hope. Mm. Um, And I've thought about that many, many, many times because clearly hope is such um, an important emotion that we can feel. So I guess perhaps if someone is listening to this now and they, they feel like, you know, they're they're at rock bottom, they've got no hope, Um, you know, they perhaps don't yet see a, a, you know, a brighter version of the future. Um, Are there any ways that we could perhaps instill some more hope into our lives? I think that the key thing about hope is it's starting small, even if it's just like a flicker of hope or a sense that things can be different, because we know that when you've got hope, actually, it makes you experience less distress and the research shows that outcomes are far better if you can have some hope in what you're going through but I think it's also looking small it's you know having the support of others and hope in that or it's seeing that you're getting out of bed each day and seeing something that's 
um, really impressive when you're going through something so difficult. I think it's also noticing the small ways things are progressing and you're improving or you're adjusting to what's happened. And again, hearing stories of others can be a really kind of hopeful thing. I know when I went through trauma, just knowing that other people have been through difficult times and come out the other side was a real relief to me, you know, and knowing that there was a way through even these really difficult experiences that I heard about. Um, and it's just clinging on to any small thing you can. You talk about uh, seven stages and, uh, you know, stage six, driving, letting go and accepting. Um, I would love to pick up on the idea of of letting go. Something bad is happening. We, 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 we try to, I guess, let go of, of that weight. I think for myself in particular, um, I think that that would be one of the ones that I, I've struggled the, the most with. And I, I also think for other people, you know, that letting go of something, um, that it can also kind of feel good that if we've been wronged by someone else, you know, it, it does kind of give us some relief to, uh, you know, to kind of feel vindictive or vengeful about them in, in the short term, but no doubt that in the long term, that that, that is not a, an optimal strategy. But if, you know, something bad has happened to us, um, how can we, I guess, we begin the process of letting go of, of that? Yeah. I guess, firstly, I completely agree. And in the book, I say it as well, it is, that is one of the hardest steps. Mm. And it comes at step six out of seven because there's a lot of work to do before that. Right. And in terms of that kind of grief that we experience in, res in response to what's happened and the emotions that come with it, whether it's sadness, anger, resentment, you know, it, it's understanding that that's part of grieving and that you've got to go through that first. So that's a proportionate response that you'd expect to the thing that's happened to you. But if you get stuck in it, the outcomes are really negative. And again, the research shows that health outcomes, both physically and emotionally, um, are affected for the worse if you get stuck on those things and I think how I came to think about it and describe it in the book was seeing that when you don't let go you're bound to the past and you're bound to all those negative feelings all those negative experiences and that although it feels like you know in a way you're internally trying all the time to right this wrong you can't you know what's happened has happened and by going back there constantly you're staying imprisoned by it mm. and it binds you to the past and I think that by seeing the impact on you and the negative impact it's having, it's a time then to start to make a choice. And once you have kind of had a chance to grieve for your losses, to think, actually, you know, the one choice I don't have is winding back time and changing what's happened. But beyond that, my choices are infinite. And how I move forward next and what I do and what I choose to learn from this, that's all down to me. And once you come to a point that you accept what's happened and that you know, it isn't changeable. It's a chance to kind of see that life is now as it is rather than how you hoped it would be. But by doing that, you let go and it allows you to move forward and kind of come back to the present, but also plan for your future ahead. In your own clinic, in your, your own, uh, you know, uh, life as a clinical psychologist, would you say that you have seen people that kind of go through these steps that that totally recover from a real traumatic experience you know they go through the arc and then they, you know they come out the other side as better people definitely and that's what I see again and again and that's what all the stories in the book show you know that they go through unimaginably difficult things 
And yet they still find a way through it to come out feeling stronger in a better place, knowing more about themselves, knowing more about life. And I think that um, that doesn't mean you've got life worked out, you know, or that life's never going to be bad again. I think it's also coming to an understanding about how life is. So, you know, going back again to that framework, it's like a new part of the map gets added about that life can be unpredictable and uncertain, but that you can cope with that and that you can get through it and that you've got people who support you as you go through it. You learn who really cares about you. You know, you kind of learn more about other people. And so um, whilst not everybody does, you know, some people are negatively affected by trauma and don't get over it. The majority do overcome it and, you know, find out more about themselves and go forward in life more resilient. I think that's that's very nourishing to hear for people. And the, the final stage that you outline in the book and, and is a whole other uh you know succession of steps leading up to it that, that you know we could spend 10 hours talking about yeah. that, that people you know when they get the book they can check out but but in step seven uh you know that this point relates to becoming ourselves becoming yourself um and i'd just be curious to know kind of how you view this about i guess what we can do what some steps are that we could take to perhaps learn more about ourselves to um, you know, to to I guess become more interceptive to perhaps I guess start to begin to build that momentum and to maybe reshape ourselves into something positive. Yeah, I think that um, one of the big things about this is starting to tune back into ourselves. And when life's really busy or we're kind of pulled along by what's expected of us, um, it's hard to have the time to look up and think, okay, is this what I want? Is this how I want to do things? Is this still you know, what I where I thought I'd end up when I was younger. And when you start to tune back into kind of, I guess, almost like listen to your heart and think about, okay, what do I want? What are the things that are important to me? Am I doing those things? And alongside that, when you start to kind of tune into your strengths and the type of person you are and what you're capable of, it starts to open up more of what you want from life. And, you know, how we spend our time is one of the most important decisions we make. And so consciously starting to think about how we do that and not just in terms of looking at what more we want. I think it's also being really grateful for what we already have. And that so often in life we get stuck thinking about the next thing or the next goal. So we're pulled along imagining that when we get to that point, it'll be different. It's about bringing ourselves back to the present and where we are now and the things that we can do that make us feel ourselves and bring out the best in us and that we do. And then we come back from feeling better and making active choices about what you want rather than guided by what other people think. Um, and I think a great question that you can ask yourself, and there's this wonderful story about Candy Chang, which she came up with this question and she's got a website which kind of explains why, but she got people to ask the question, before I die, I want to, and then fill in the blank. Because mm. I think when you start to focus on life and what you want from it in those terms, it, it opens things up in a different way and it lets you start to think okay what do I really value and I think often that changes as we get older you know when I was younger I thought that success might be more work related whereas you know having kids now and you know like being older having had experience working and you know doing the things I care about actually it's so much more nuanced than that and when you start to work out the things that really matter to you and really make a difference to you, it shapes your life in this far more conscious way. 
And the thing that I love about that question, I think it actually really helps with stage six, because I guess if you think, you know, what do I want to do before before I die? And you kind of think about how short that life is from a rational perspective, the, the idea about holding on to things that actively diminish your joy, yeah. the thinking cost that comes with it. Um, you know, I, I I think that kind of falls away a little bit. So I I, I love that question. Um, I love the book. I have to say, um, tell these guys where they can connect with you, where they can get the book, anywhere else that you would love to send our audience. Um, the book is available pretty much everywhere online. It's in Waterstones as well, um, and then I'm on social media as Dr. Jessamy everything will be linked below uh i believe this was the third time you've been on the show and i always love speaking to you so uh jessamy thank you so much again for for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having me and i always enjoy our chats too it's been really great to speak to you about the book 